So this afternoon, it was just this afternoon, we were exploring the second of the four Brahma-Vahara qualities, which is compassion. And in an ideal world, we'd have a full day, or a full week, or maybe even a full month, to really land in our compassion practice. But, as I think you know, this is not an ideal world. And when I was thinking about what to talk about tonight, it felt important to be able to cover all of the Brahma-Vihara qualities. So this evening, I'd like to move on to Mudita, the third of the four, which is usually translated as appreciative joy. And even though in some ways it might feel a bit rushed to be moving on to the third quality already, I still think it's useful because I've been emphasizing being, just being able to recognize what these qualities are helps them to grow. And even if we only experience them for short moments at a time, the more we can touch into these skillful states, the more easily available they come to us. And over time, as we get more skilled in the practice, more skilled at releasing what gets in the way of these beautiful qualities, then the Brahma-Viharas do start to become more and more the default setting of our hearts and minds. So just to situate Mudita in the diamond model that I introduced last night, as you remember, metta is the foundation. And as we were exploring this afternoon, when that metta turns towards pain, towards suffering, it can flower as compassion. And then on the other side of the scale, when metta turns towards what's going well, it can flower as mudita, appreciative joy. And then when our hearts are equally open to the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys, we experience equanimity, the profound balance and peace of heart and mind. So just to take some time now to explore mudita in a bit more detail. It's sometimes translated as appreciative joy, sympathetic joy, altruistic joy, and sometimes simply as gladness. So it's the heart's capacity to feel gladness. And traditionally, the emphasis is on the capacity to feel gladness for someone else's happiness and good fortune. So it includes flavors of appreciation and gratitude. And it can be a very uplifting and inspiring quality. And those of you who've been listening to my talks for a while, you, you might know that when I talk about the Brahma-Viharas, I sometimes like to bring in animal stories to illustrate these different flavors of love. And that's partly because sometimes it's easier to feel the Brahma-Viharas in relation to animals than it is in relation to humans. Somehow our relationships with each other often seem to get quite complicated whereas our relationships with animals can be a bit more straightforward. So I'd just like to share an experience that I had a few years ago that might hopefully help you connect to how Mudita feels in the heart. So it was a few years ago now when I was walking along the beach near my parents' home in the north of New Zealand with my mother. It was a beautiful sunny day, 
and we were watching a woman who was paddling a surf ski just out beyond the breaking waves, quite close inshore. And so I was watching her and imagining what a pleasant experience she was having. And then suddenly a fin appeared in the water behind her. And I had a bit of a pulse of alarm on her behalf. And I noticed another fin and another fin and another fin. And I quickly realized that these weren't sharks. They were dolphins. And a whole pod of dolphins had just swum up and completely surrounded the woman. And some of these dolphins were mothers and they had babies following them. And we watched as these Mothers and babies started diving under the surf ski and popping up on the other side. And they were looking right at the woman with their big dolphin grins. Definitely communicating with her, playing with her. They were dancing and diving and splashing all around her. And it was totally enchanting to watch this experience. It lasted for maybe about 20 minutes. And then the woman paddled into shore And my mother and I went over to talk to her, and she was literally vibrating with happiness. She was trembling from head to toe. And she told us that she'd been paddling on that beach for decades, and she had never encountered anything like that. And she said at first she was a little bit worried that perhaps they were trying to attack her, and they were intending to flip the surf ski and pull her into the water. But she said it was very quickly apparent that they just wanted to play. And so she relaxed and let them do their thing. And she could, she said they were so close that she could have stroked them. And that the mothers were teaching the babies how to play too. So in that whole encounter with the dolphins, what struck me was how those dolphins transmitted their own sense of delight and playfulness to the woman on the surf ski, and also to me and my mother as we were watching from the shore. And perhaps as you hear that story, maybe just some flickers of mudita for you now too, as you might be imagining that scene. So this quality of delight, of appreciation, of uplift, all of these are in the terrain of mudita. And while it might be relatively easy to feel mudita in relation to animals, sometimes when it comes to feeling happiness for other people's happiness, this can be quite a stretch. Many of us, perhaps most of us, live in societies where the dominant values that we're brought up with are individualism and competitiveness. So it's not surprising then that our heart's first response might not be to feel joy at someone else's success or happiness. In fact, we might more quickly fall into what's known as the near enemy of mudita, which is envy or jealousy or resentment. Fortunately, though, as with all of the Brahma-Vihara qualities, we can train in this, we can practice it. And with practice, it is possible to experience appreciative joy quite naturally, quite easily. But just to name two, perhaps because of that uh, 
conditioning of individualism and competitiveness, sometimes joy is almost dismissed as a lightweight quality. But as some of you know, it actually plays a significant role in the Buddha's teachings. And in spite of that, when I first started getting interested in mudita, a few years ago now, it did seem to be the poor cousin of these four Brahmavihara. So back then, when I searched the list of talks that were available on Dharma Seed by subject, I found that there were 165 pages of talks on metta. There were 125 pages of talks on compassion. There were 68 pages of talks on equanimity and 18 on mudita. So there are 10 talks on each page. So altogether, there were only 180 talks on mudita out of a total of almost 30,000 talks on Dharma Seed at that time. Just not a lot. So perhaps part of that lack of interest is due to a sense that maybe particularly in times like these, it can seem naive or even just ridiculous to consider cultivating joy when our survival of us as a species is under threat. Every day we are exposed to horrifying news, not only in the world out there, but in our own communities and our own families. And there are just so many different forms of social injustice and oppression and climate catastrophes that we can easily get pulled into despair. So we might legitimately ask, well, how can cultivating joy even be possible, let alone relevant in times like these? And again, I, I can't answer that question for any of you, but in terms of my own practice, I realize it's precisely because there's so much suffering in the world that I've needed to consciously make the time and effort to counter that, to turn towards non-suffering, to turn towards gladness, towards joy, to restore myself so that I can then once again have the capacity to face into what's difficult with greater resilience, strength, and the capacity to stay balanced. So as many of you know, balance is woven throughout everything that the Buddha taught, and it starts in the very first discourse that he gave after he fully woke up and realized Nibbana, enlightenment. And in that first teaching, the Buddha spoke about the middle way. The middle way being the need for balance between extremes. So on one hand, not falling into self-indulgence, and on the other, not falling into self-torture. Now back at the time of the Buddha, apparently physical self-torture was seen as being a form of spiritual practice. Now these days... That's not part of what we do, fortunately. But as Joseph Goldstein has pointed out, what is very common, not so much physical self-torture, but psychological self-torture. So many of us have quite strong conditioning patterns of inadequacy and self-aversion. And I'll be talking more about that soon, but for now... 
just keep in mind that the Buddha framed all of his teachings in terms of the middle way, not getting caught in self-indulgence or hedonism on one side, and not getting caught in self-torture, or in modern terms, self-loathing on the other. So cultivating joy has a very important role in balancing out our tendency to focus more on what's difficult than on what's going well. And I've seen this bias in my own practice and also many of the students that I work with around the world. There's often this unseen assumption that our meditation practice is supposed to be hard work. It's supposed to be uncomfortable, difficult, even painful. And if it's not those things, if it's neutral, or perhaps even enjoyable, then we must be doing something wrong. We're obviously not working hard enough, or we're not going deep enough, or we're not seeing clearly enough. So if we do have that underlying assumption, there's often a lot of unconscious resistance. And sometimes even resistance just to the idea that joy might be a necessary part of the practice. So I just invite you to notice during this talk any views or beliefs about what good practice is that might be coming up for you and to see if there might be an imbalance, a bias towards the self-punishment side of the spectrum. And again, as I've been emphasizing, not to take these biases personally. And particularly because this negativity bias is actually, to some extent, hardwired into us. We are hardwired to pay more attention to what's unpleasant than what's pleasant. So most of you probably know Rick Hansen's catchy statement that our minds are like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. And you may have seen that even over the course of today. What's experienced as unpleasant or painful tends to stick in our minds like Velcro. And on the other side, what's pleasant tends to slide right off, like food from a non-stick frying pan. So just on that basic biological level, we have that bias. And it can be useful practice to consciously at times pay attention to what's pleasant, to tune in to pleasant experiences every now and then, just as a way of training ourselves to open to the full spectrum of our experience. So we have this biological bias towards the unpleasant, and then we often add a whole pile of social, societal, cultural condition, conditioning that reinforces it. So as I mentioned earlier, that belief that meditation practice is supposed to be hard work. And while it is true that the Buddha warned us over and over to not get attached to sense pleasures, in my own practice I was so afraid of getting attached to enjoyment that for a while I didn't allow myself to feel any kind of pleasure at all. I was actually afraid of it. And it took quite a while to recognize this attitude and to understand it was actually a form of wrong view. The wrong view that pleasant experiences automatically lead to attachment. 
And in fact, in the Buddha's own experience, it was pleasant, skillful mental states that turned his practice and led him to, very shortly after that recognition, attain Nibbāna. So joy has a very important role in this practice. And it's also true that feeling joy requires a certain openness, even vulnerability. It can take a surprising amount of courage to let ourselves open to joy, knowing that it's impermanent and it will end. So some of you probably know the work of Brene Brown, a research professor who's spent 16 years studying courage and vulnerability and empathy and shame. And during the course of her research, she discovered that there's a strong link between the capacity to feel vulnerable and the ability to feel joy. So in an interview, she says, when we wake up every morning and armor up and say, I'm not going to let myself be hurt. I'm not going to let myself be seen. I'm not going to let myself be emotionally wrung out. I'm going to protect my vulnerability. When we lose that capacity for vulnerability, joy becomes foreboding. Because in those moments when we do feel joy, the first thing we think is, "Uh uh-oh, you will not blindside me, vulnerability. I will beat you to the punch. I'm going to stand here and squander this incredible moment with my child or my partner, or this incredible moment about my promotion, and I'm going to imagine the worst-case scenario. That way, if it happens, it will hurt less. And she goes on to say, which is why it's so ironic to me that people think that vulnerability is weakness, when really... Letting ourselves fully soften into feeling is one of the most courageous things we do. And I think many of you who did the relational practice this afternoon around compassion had a taste of that, of the courage it takes, but the delight, the sharing, the empathy that that also makes available. So cultivating joy can be a challenging practice for many people, but the benefits can be equally powerful. And so how do we actually do mudita as a meditation practice? Again, it's taught similarly to metta, traditionally through reciting a different set of phrases that are designed to bring up this joy. And just to give you a sense of some of those traditional phrases, May your happiness and joy continue. May your happiness not leave you. May your happiness continue to grow. And then traditionally, the sequence of people begins with someone we're close to, a good friend who's currently enjoying some kind of good fortune. And then we move to the benefactor, then to a neutral person, then to a so-called difficult person, And then lastly, to all beings. So there's one being in that sequence that's been left out. Anybody recognize who that is? Yes, oneself. 
So in the traditional method of mudita practice that comes from the Suddhimagga, we don't include ourselves in mudita practice at all. And when I first heard this, I thought it was strange, because everywhere else in the teachings, the Buddha encourages us to make no distinction between self and other. So it didn't make sense to me that while we include ourselves in the other three Brahmaviharas, here with joy, we're supposed to leave ourselves out. So I asked a Pali scholar what the word mudita actually means. And he said that originally it simply meant gladness and that the word itself doesn't have any sense of for another. And I also found out that that form of mudita practice that I just described comes from the Visuddhimagga, which again is quite some time after the lifetime of the Buddha. And as far as we know, the way mudita was offered in the Buddha's lifetime was that radiating energy method that we were exploring this morning. And this way of practicing is also found in the traditional Buddhist chant that some of you may know on the Brahma Viharas. So the section on Mudita just says, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with gladness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So again, we simply abide with a heart-mind imbued with gladness and then invite it to encompass the entire world. And so again, it starts from our own heart centers. And as I was learning about mudita, I got interested in finding how to start this sense of gladness, how to get it going. And I found that orienting a little more towards self-appreciation rather than self-judgment was one way that helped it. So I started to experiment with consciously doing that in alignment with some teachings that the Buddha gave to a layman by the name of Mahanama. So Mahanama, according to the discourses, was a layman and he went to the Buddha and more or less said, You give all these teachings for monastics, but how about you give something suitable for me as a layperson who, quote, lives in a household that is dusty and crowded with children. So Mahanama was very much a layman, and the Buddhists offered to him, told him that if he contemplated six things every day, it would deepen his understanding of Dhamma. And as a result, his mind would develop strong samadhi and he would make quick progress on the path to freedom. So the six things that the Buddha was invited invited Mahanama to contemplate every day were one, the good qualities of the Buddha, two, the good qualities of the Dharma or the teachings that lead to freedom, three, the good qualities of the Sangha, a community of people who are following these teachings, then Mahanama's own generosity, then the good qualities of Mahanama himself, and then the good qualities of the devas or angels. So what interested me most in that list was the Buddha's instruction to recall his own generosity and his own good qualities and that this would strengthen his capacity to meditate and deepen his progress on the path. 
And I have to confess that when I first heard this, I was a little horrified, even at the idea of contemplating my own generosity and my own good qualities. So maybe a little masochistically, I decided that I would take it on as a practice. And I was surprised at the benefits that came from it. They were not what I would have anticipated. So when we're doing this, if you choose to do this as a practice, it's not that we're trying to inflate ourselves and to just create a more positive self-image to balance out the more usual negative self-image. So we're not trying to construct a new identity for ourselves. Instead, we're trying to appreciate more the whole of who we are and understand that all of us have skillful as well as not so skillful tendencies and we don't need to be dominated by the so-called bad bits. So the Buddha spoke often of the delusion of comparing mind which so often comes up for us and this conceit as he called it this is a form of conceiving where we conceive ourselves as being better than, worse than, or equal to. And all of these in the Buddha's understanding are equally forms of delusion. It's just not possible to compare ourselves to someone else because our life circumstances are so completely unique. Our family, our societal conditioning have shaped us. And I found for myself that when I took on this practice of looking at my own good qualities, the first benefit was that it made me actually much better able to appreciate other people's good qualities too. And surprisingly, I got less caught in comparing mind. I felt more accepting and more at ease because I had a more balanced sense of myself, one that was less defined by lack and inadequacy. And the second benefit of acknowledging our good qualities is that we see that they're not, we can't really take ownership of them. They don't belong to us in the way we might think. So those good qualities were instilled in me by my family, by my teachers, by my Dharma teachers, by my friends, by my Sangha, and so on. I can't really say that they're mine. And I also found that it helped to develop trust in the practice when I could acknowledge the positive changes that were happening. And I could see clearly over time that this practice is working and is bringing benefits and that can build our trust, our faith, the confidence to continue. So just a little more about how to practice it and then we can take a short break and give it a try. So as with all of the Brahma Viharas, we're encouraged to start where it comes most easily and to start small. So mudita doesn't have to be some kind of big ecstatic bliss state. It can be very light, fleeting, subtle. And just to acknowledge, for some people, even the word joy is a stretch. I've sometimes named, you know, in my own case, I have parents from the north of England. So I don't know if you know much about cultural stereotypes. But in that setting, I don't think I even heard the word joy until I came into contact with these teachings. So 
So we all have our heritage that may make this word joy feel a little like a stretch. So you can put in your own word there, whatever makes sense for you. Maybe gladness, appreciation, lightness. So the phrases that I mentioned earlier, I'm happy that you're happy, may your happiness and joy continue. Again, they didn't work particularly well for me, so I developed my own phrases that I'll offer today. But again, you're invited to play with this and uh, experiment and find phrases that make sense for you. But the ones I'll be working with now, and I will post these later, are I'm happy for your happiness. I take joy in your good fortune. May your joy continue. May it grow. May it lead to ever-deepening ease and freedom. So I wanted to bring in this reminder that the joy is not just joy for its own sake, that it's a powerful spiritual quality that does lead to freedom, does support freedom. Okay, so I think that's plenty of information. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.